Welcome, mere mortal listeners. How are you going? Karen here. I hope you're having a great day. Before I begin this book review, I just wanted to give a little bit of info of just some little upcoming changes that I have been noticing in myself, and that's probably going to reflect into the mere models content. One of these is that I'm just not reading as much as I was, in, let's just say, three months ago. And at the current moment, we have the book reviews every Tuesday, which is still going to remain the same. But I was doing a lot of uh, Thursday book reviews, bonus ones, and I just think that pace is going to drop off and I'm going to be doing more interviews or other sort of content there. So just keep that in mind. If you do actually really enjoy the book reviews and are getting uh, a value from them, if you find them useful, maybe re- let me know in the comments or however it is that you want to. Instagram is another great way. And I can either read a little bit more or or bring in some old book reviews, which I I have read in the past, but I haven't actually done a a review of yet. So if you're enjoying this, if you're finding it valuable, let me know and I I can have a little play around and look-see and see what I can do there. But uh, with that being said, let's get into today's book. So today I have for you Sons and Lovers by D.H. Lawrence. I'd heard of D.H. Lawrence a, a fair bit before, but I'd never actually read any of his works, mostly because I think I already knew it was sort of that fiction which wasn't dystopian, which is my, that's my sort of route to go down. If it's fictional, I want it to be a, a dystopian type book. But uh, this one focuses more on relationships, which, yeah, I, I can't say I'm, I'm particularly that interested in. But once again, it was in my classic se- section, i.e. books that are more than 100 years old. And I was coming right up to the end of my book reading challenge. So I had it here. I was like, all right, I'm going to do it. So... This book was published in 1913 and it's the story of the Morel family in late 19th century England. Now, the, it, it revolves around certain characters basically and it's only a select number. So I'll, I'll go through them right now, but I won't go through the full story. Obviously, I, I never really do that. Uh, so the mother, the mother, excuse me, is Gertrude, Gertrude Morell, and she's a an, an ambitious young woman initially who who meets the the father in this case, which is Walter, and she's very attracted to his spirit, his his personality in some sense, but doesn't realize that he is actually from quite a lower class and cannot live up to her almost middle class expectations. So when she marries him, has kids with him. Her, her life basically begins this downhill descent from this initial youthful blooming that she had. So throughout the book, we see that she's increasingly suffering in, in terms of her, her desires, which go unfulfilled. The, the life that she could have had, she, she resents what she is living in, in the moment. She resents the person her husband is and almost how he becomes and... The book is very much told through her eyes and through her son's eyes. We don't really get the opinion of of Walter, so it's very, very critical on him. And it's just interesting going through that and and seeing, okay, this is this is sort of uh, you you get the story from one side really in this book. Now, the the father uh, Walter Morell, he's a coal miner. He works down in the mines. He's also a drunkard, so he goes basically every day after work, has drinks with his friends, comes home. And he's very consistently described as a brute. He sometimes hits physically his children and uh, his wife, but he it's more in this intellectual sense than anything else. He just doesn't have the capacity for 
learning from books, from deep conversations about obscure topics or even just normal topics. He just doesn't have that that switch. But he is very good with his hands, for example, so he's a very good handyman. And I suppose those, those, that, that interaction between those two then defines what happens in the rest of the book. Now, she has, I think it's four kids in total, three of them being sons and one daughter, but it focuses on two of the sons, William and Paul. They're very energetic. They're, they're very vibrant kids. And the, the book then you know, turns onto these characters and their lovers, hence the name Sons and Lovers. I won't go through everything, but essentially it, 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 it ends in mostly negative outcomes for everyone. I wouldn't say it's a very uplifting book, and, but it does explore some of the, the sides of human nature and um, the interactions, relationships that people can create. Now, it's a very long book. Uh, this book's 558 pages and it, it revolves around the people talking and a little bit of the scenery. So there's not that much action in it. So you, you be prepared for long conversations, reading long, long conversations. Now, some of the themes from the book. Number one, I would say, is the stifled ambition and vicarious living. You can see with Gertrude, she uses her sons as, as essentially vicarious lovers, not in the physical sense, obviously, but for her intellectual wants and, and desires. And she uses them in the sense that they, they can never escape from her. They always have this longing to be with their mother and it's almost, you know, sort of unhealthy in a way that they can't, they can't separate her from their, their abstract image of what a, like a wife should be, what a, another lover should be. And so it, it's sort of a clingingness and it's, it's very selfish on her part because you can see that her sons just can't escape from this and they're, they're always being drawn back into their world of their mother. Now, this raises the question, what, what should an individual do? What should the son do in that case? And does it ever work out well? I'm particularly thinking here of modern day examples of you know, the soccer mom, for example, that, that lady or man who is on the side of the field shouting at their kids to win, 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 and they're sort of using their kids as a vicarious way of maybe perhaps things they haven't done in their life. They're releasing their emotions onto them, their, their desires for success and and the better things in life they're using a kid you can think of a a dad who presses his son to continually do something and i i just don't think this actually works out well in any case you need to have that middle ground obviously you need to give your your children love and support and make sure that they feel safe in life but also you need to to press them to do things to 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 be successful to to um in, inculculate I'm not sure that's the correct word but to to raise in themselves the the good habits and formations the ethics that a a good person should have now does that ever work out well when they're too overbearing I would probably say no but you know maybe it does sometimes especially if a kid has no direction in life and they need that sort of person pushing him in the back saying do this do this but the problem then is obviously transferring your own intellectual, your your own biases onto your, your kid. And I'm particularly talking about interests here. Just because you are interested in soccer, in jujitsu, in an art, in reading, doesn't mean your kid is necessarily going to be. Um, 
so yeah, and it just goes into another thing. I've I've been on this theme a lot lately, but the difference between wanting them to succeed, the good intentions, and the actual reality of the situation. And that's just something each individual, each parent, each person will have to judge for themselves. All of this is, of course, coming from someone who does not have kids. So, you know, I could just really be talking out of my ass here. And if I am, I apologize. Um, But whatever, that's my opinion. The other one is asexuality and divorcing the soul from the physical. So this was, I think, one of the first books I've really read where it has what I would describe as an asexual character. William dies, the, the older son. He, he has a very small part in the, in the first third of the book where he is his mother's perfect child. Essentially, he's, he's very good looking. He's, he's handsome. He's smart. He's hardworking. He knows how to interact with people. And he very, very quickly rises from his rather poor situation initially to the, you know, he goes to London. He becomes, I'm not sure, maybe a banker, but he, he, Financially, he succeeds in every term of the word, but he's caught up with appearances. So his his lover, Gypsy, is what he would imagine the you know the perfect lover to be like. What his mum sort of want, maybe not what his mum wants, but what he's missing in his life that that stability of the position his mum would have loved to have been in. For example, uh, unfortunately, she is dumb. She's a bit coarse. She's a bit ignorant. She's a bit airy fairy she has no grounding in the world and even talks about just before he dies he says you know she's not going to care for me Uh, three months later she's going to have forgotten me and he does die and that does actually happen the other case is of paul and paul is the main focus of the book he he essentially dominates the two-thirds three-quarters of the book after william dies and his mother's affections longing pressures gets put onto him instead of onto William. Now he loves uh, two girls in the in the book or he's involved with two girls, one being Miriam and she's the one who I would describe as asexual. She has a very strong, intense, almost nostalgic soul. She she feels things so so deeply and you can see this in all of her conversations and actions, but she has no desire physically for for Paul and there's no she she wants his soul she wants his intellectual capacities but she doesn't particularly want the the other things that come with that and this sort of draws him in but pushes him away at the same time he loves her for her soul but she rejects him for his body at the same time and it's not just him as well uh, uh, her as well he also has that aspect of not being able to give everything because he's keeping so much back which he holds for his mother, that sort of sacred place in his heart. He can't give that to to anyone else because his mother dominates that and she needs that. He then uh, goes on to Clara, who is a sort of mix between the two. She is more the physical. She is the more you know, vibracious, voluptuous um, sort of sex goddess, I guess, in a sense for him. But she doesn't have those those inner parts, those inner workings, the the deepness that Miriam does. And it got me thinking, in the future, could we separate these two into multiple people? It doesn't work out in the book. He loses both of them. He loses Clara when she goes back with her her ex, well, her husband, who she never actually divorced, I don't think. And Miriam, he 
he meets her right at the final and it, it, he just can't give her what she's looking for. And so he loses both. And essentially he had both roughly at the same time as well. He had the emotional side covered and the physical side covered. And this is a relative, well, maybe not relatively new, but it's a topic that gets talked about nowadays, especially with polygamy or being able to have multiple lovers in a in that sort of sense. And mostly when people talk about that, they talk about the, the physical aspect of having two different lovers. But just got me thinking, you know, potentially in the future, would we want, is it, is it desirous, first of all, to have multiple people, multiple lovers? Is monogamy or really all that it's cracked up to be? And also, can we actually do that? From everything that I've sort of learned about human nature and, and psychology, I think it would be very, very difficult to, to be able to, to partition those two things. I, I, I just think it's humans. We're not that great at sharing. If you think about everything, resources, um, money, food, like everything. We're just not that great at sharing with lots of people and especially something so deep, so so I guess intrinsic to our evolution as well, which is you know the sexual drive and reproducing kids. Splitting that up amongst many people, I think there's a reason the default is monogamy and having one partner and that's just because human beings are just very jealous creatures. We just can't handle having those multiple things going on at the same time and you know it'd be interesting in the future i think it's being talked more about so i'm assuming more people are experimenting with this as well and seeing how those sorts of communities pan out in the long run do are people able to to mentally separate those two and also just asexuality as well what what can that sort of person expect from the world where they have no interest in in like the physical se- sexual act or that that sort of part of human nature. So my own observations is a very evocative as far as the scenery, as far as the landscapes, the descriptiveness were, I guess, enchanting of, of basically everything. He was very good at evoking the images in your mind of what was around them and what was happening. Lots and lots of talk about flowers, about the countryside, even the the sort of negative aspects or like the the more boring aspects, which are, you know, the big cities, the working in the stocking factory, it was still very evocative and you could really picture it. I think he did a fantastic job at that. Uh, my problem though was I, I really had trouble understanding the inner thoughts and the interactions that were going on and considering basically the whole book is just conversations between the characters and their relationships this this really I really struggled with. So it was sort of similar to my annoyance with the turn of the screw. I mentioned how the governess was getting so deep into her head and thinking, oh, the kid's doing this, he's thinking this, with no actual reality behind it. I sort of felt the same here where he was going too deep into the character's souls and he was delving emotional parts, which I either don't have or I find uninteresting. And so... There was just some parts in particular, like one scene in particular just really stood out to me as going, I, I, I can't relate to this. I cannot relate to this at all, which was when Paul was with Miriam and they were talking about something deep and emotional. They were in the garden in this beautiful setting and one of his, he, he bent down to smell a flower or, or something along the lines of that and in his cat-like leaf movements, 
going through plucking the plucking of the stem was an outrageous, you know, almost like a disgrace, the equivalent of 10,000 tragedies. And she hated him for that. And I just went, what the fuck are you talking about? <laughs> How can you hate someone for picking a goddamn flower? Like this makes no sense. So that happened a couple of times in the book where I just went, I like, I, I've never hated someone because they picked a goddamn flower. What the hell is going on here? So I feel like he got too deep into it. It was too descriptive. Like it was, it was just the descriptions were amazing for the scenery and, and creating the atmosphere. But when transferring that onto the relationships, I just, yeah, I had no idea what was going on. And so for a large part of the book, I went through it not knowing what was actually like the relationships between it. There's actually a, a funny point here. I, I generally recommend and put into practice myself of not reading introductions before I actually read the book myself because I want the, the first-hand experience. I don't want other people's opinions telling me this is what it's going to be like and then reading it myself. This was one of the times where I think I would have been better reading the, the deconstruction of it. This book has an afterword, I believe, by, uh, by Louis L. Martz called A Study in the Design of Sons and Lovers. And it's in the after, um, final section of this book. And he actually goes through it a, a little bit and it clarified a lot of things for me. So I wish I'd read that at the start because then I could have maybe understood the interactions that were going on. So there's a little caveat, a, a breaking of the normal rule. If, you, if you're very much like me, if you, if you understand what I say and vibe with what I'm saying and do a similar practice, I would, I would say for this book, it might be worth at least going through the Wikipedia and understanding the interactions between some of the characters and the themes because it was more in vast hindsight and reading this that I understood, okay, this is sort of what was going on. But in summary, uh, I, I got to say I found it uh, unsatisfying and a, a little bit boring on the whole. It was a very tedious book for me, very, very te- tedious. I would say the sufferings of the author were captured, and I haven't really talked about that, but the author, D.H. Lawrence, he had a very similar thing with a, a dying mother. Sort of, He projected large parts of himself into this book and his situation. And so although his sufferings were captured in the book, they were then imparted onto me and <laughs> I didn't I didn't particularly enjoy that. So I'm giving it a four out of ten just for the experience of reading the book. I it was long, it was boring, it was tedious. I didn't understand what was happening a lot of the time, but the scenery was kind of cool. Something pragmatic from the book, from the book Sons and Lovers by D. H. Lawrence. I'm not gonna set book goals anymore. I believe I've talked about this recently, but I had a goal for reading 50 books from October to October and this was book number 49 and I only had two weeks left so I sort of had to read it and I I wish I hadn't. It was it, This was definitely one of those books where 50 pages in, 10% of the way into the book, I pretty much knew I wasn't going to either get anything from it or really enjoy it. So that was my impressions and my, my little impersonation as well. If you're wondering why I'm wearing a, a raggedy sort of shirt and bowler, bowler-like bowler hat, it's because I wanted to try and capture that evocative imagery of the 19th century England. And uh, I hope you enjoy. I really hope you enjoy. I hope you're getting some value from these. If, if you have any recommendations of how to improve as well, maybe going a bit more into the backstory of the author and how he created it, maybe 
diving deeper into other themes or stylistically wise how the book is written i'm i'm willing to uh you know change up my my general pattern of how i'm doing things here so uh, leave a comment if if that is the case on either youtube or on instagram you can find me there and yeah that's it for today karen out <laughs>